Hello, folks, and thank you for tuning in to the Federalist Files. On today's show, we're going to go over Federalist number 62. It is titled The Senate. It is written by James Madison, February 27th, 1788. Topics include introduction to the Senate. Laws are made for the few, not the many. Senate should have a higher national character of stability and integrity. So this one's actually very profound. This is a pretty important paper. He starts off, and this entire paper pretty much is derived from him laying out the five points of explanation uh, in this examination of the Senate. And this is kind of just an introductory of the Senate itself. So he starts off, and this is, this is the, uh, the five points in which he's going to explain in this paper. He starts off, and I quote, number one, the qualification of senators. Number two, the appointment of them by the state legislators. Number three, the equality of representation in the Senate. Number four, the number of senators and the term for which they are to be elected. Number five, the powers vested in the Senate. So I think I want to say that he goes through four and he doesn't hit five. And then I think the next paper, he pretty much dedicates the entire paper to five. But I may be wrong here, but we're going to go on. So in reference to the qualifications proposed, which is the number one point, he states, and I quote, a senator must be 30 years of age at least, as a representative must be 25, and the former must have been a citizen of nine years, as seven years are required for the latter. So he's differentiating between the two. You're going to have the senators are going to be, they have to be at least 35 years of age, just like the president, whereas with the representatives of the House, it's going to be 25 years. And the senators as well have to be a citizen for nine years, whereas with the representatives in the House, it is seven years. So then he goes on. He continues to differentiate between the two, and, and he puts some extra emphasis on this. He states, and I quote, The nature of the senatorial trust, which requiring greater extent of information and stability of character, requires at the time that the senator should be have reached a period of life most likely to supply these advantages. So, so really what he's saying is you're going to have two senators per state. There's going to be much less senators than there are representatives. So currently now in modern times you have 50 senators, you have two for each state, uh, this follows strictly to the Constitution. And then the apportionment over time has changed for the House of Representatives, which also adheres to the Constitution. That is 435 at this time. So holding, uh, we only have 50 senators, we have 435 representatives of the House. Therefore, the Senate holds much more power, and in the right, the powers that are vested in the Senate are different than the House of Representatives, and in a way, they're kind of more important in, in some aspects. So, and additionally, he says that the reason for this age is there's more information that is required to, to run in this position, to, to be a senator, stability of character, things of that nature. So really, the way that it works in modern-day politics, and it's always kind of worked this way, if you're, if you're starting in politics, you usually start local, then from local... You go to federal, but you're going to go as a House of Rep, and then you go to Senate, and then you go, you know, you work your way up, really. That's kind of how it works. Some people get in as the governor, and then they try to run for president or what have you. Or they'll be in the House of Reps first, and then they'll be the governor of the state if they want to run in the executive. That's a little different. If you actually notice, <clears throat> especially over the last couple of years, Democrats generally, they run senators for president. Which, which they never actually served in the role as an executive, and they run them as president, so... 
if you actually just think about fundamentally, it makes no sense that they're running senators for president, but that's usually what they do, and that's usually the top runner, uh, i.e. Obama, Joe Biden, both of them are senators, they were never executives. Um, if you Even Trump, if you think about it, he was an executive of a company, he knows how to run that type of system. You also have uh, DeSantis, governor, uh, Mitt Romney was a governor, McCain was a senator, uh, even... Even in the last, what, the 2016 election, you had Christie was a big front runner. You had, what's his name, too? Jeb Bush. They were both governors of their states, respectively. I'm trying to think of a Democrat that was actually a governor. I think Reagan was a governor of, uh, I'm pretty sure Reagan was a governor of California for a short period of time as well. I can't really think if, if was Carter maybe? Because I know Bill Clinton was also a senator. Maybe Carter might have been a governor, but oof, that's a long time to think about so to go on here madison claims that an older age along with additional years of citizenship and experience would provide these qualities the extended years of citizenship is based on the integrity of the individual to resist foreign influence so next he states and i quote it is equally unnecessary to dilate on the appointment of senators by the state legislatures among the various modes which might have been devised for constituting this branch of the government that which has been proposed by the convention is probably the most congenial with the public opinion it is recommended by the double advantage of favoring a select appointment and of giving to the state government such an agency in the formation of the federal government as much as must secure the authority of the former and may form a convenient link between the two systems end quote so he says next is he talks about um the appointment. So he goes on to the point number two. He says the appointment of the senators, which it isn't like this anymore. Now it's a Democrat vote, Democratic vote, just like for the House of Representatives, but it's statewide. And I personally am not a fan of this. And I've said that many times. But uh, so this number two point, the election of the senators is to be there to be selected by the state legislatures. And he says this is very important because this gives the state governments themselves an agency in the formation of the federal government. They have a say in how the federal government is comprised. And that's very important because the state legislature, legislatures are direct, direct uh, representatives of the people themselves. So it is very important. So in reference to the second point in Madison, he lists that the appointment of senators by state legislators helps to create a profound link of security between the federal and state systems. Now, just once again, another note is that this is not currently the practice of electing senators. It is now democratic in means uh, very similar to the way the representatives are selected, but it is statewide rather than in specific districts. So he gets on to the, uh, the number three point. He states, and I quote, The equality of representation in the Senate is another point, which being evidently the result of com compromise between the opposite pretensions of the large and the small states, does not call for much discussion if indeed it be right that among a people thoroughly incorporated into one nation, every district ought to have a proportional share in the government, and that among independent and sovereign states bound together by a simple league, the parties, however unequal in size, ought to have an equal share in the common councils. It does not appear to be without some reason that in a compound republic partaking both of the national and the federal character the government ought to be founded on a mixture of the principles of proportional and equal representation end quote so this is actually very profound here this statement what he's saying is having these two separate chambers of, con of congress 
and having them derive their powers derived from different means, one being the state legislatures, one being directly of the people in specific districts. When you go to the people in specific districts, that is much more comprised and more important to the population of that state. That gives more power in the House of Representatives. The more populous your state is, you have more power in the House of Reps. Now, every single state has two senators, no matter what. So, so the power is kind of equal of each individual state, but it also gives more power to the smaller states because the smaller states can kind of gang up and they can resist what the larger states want to do. And that's very important. He says that there should be an equal share. And he says, considering our system is a compound republic, it's a little mixture of both a national and a federal character. They should both be represented equally and proportionally. The federal character is much more derived of the Senate, as in the federal, federalism, there's a federal government, and then all these other sovereign states, in a way they're sovereign. But at the same time, there's a little bit of a national character where there are certain specific laws laid out in the federal constitution that, um, that the states cannot violate. So that's kind of the national character, but at the same time, the federal character is the federal government does actually recognize the sovereignty of the individual states. So that gives them the power to elect these state legislatures, the power to elect senators, and that's of the federal character, whereas the national character is the election of the House of Representatives. So now he goes on. Um, I'm going to read a little synopsis of what I just read off. In reference to the third point of equality of representation by each state in the Senate, Madison argues that each state will have a proportional share of the Senate, thus making smaller states just as powerful as the large states in the Senate. So next he states, and I quote, A government founded on principles more consonant to the wishes of the larger states is not likely to be obtained from the smaller states. Uh, and then he goes on to explain this. A constitutional recognition of the portion of sovereignty remaining in the individual states, end quote, so... Exactly what I said, you know, there, there needs to be a portion of sovereignty remaining in these uh, smaller states and these individual states. So this provision will be utilized by the people to safeguard their states against improper acts of legislation. He states, and I quote, No law or resolution can now be passed without the concurrence first of a majority of the people and then of a majority of the states. Uh, further, this will be a defense against, and I'm quoting, excess of lawmaking which seem to be the diseases to which our government are most liable, end quote. So once again, this is very, I mean, this entire paper is one of the most important ones from what I've read thus far, and I did a really good job in laying it out um, in the book that I wrote, and that's what I usually do. I take from what the book I wrote, I, you know, I copy-paste, I take a look at it, then I read through the entire thing again, I delete some of the stuff that I think is not worthy, I add some extra stuff, but this one I pretty much, this one was very good, it was really well laid out, and because it's very, it's very, it's extremely important, it, you understand the elements behind uh, the selection and, and the way in which our government runs in the legislative branch in this paper. So what he's saying is, you're not going to have any law or resolution that passes with a majority of the people. Not only a majority of the people, but also you need a majority of the states in, ter in terms of federal am amendments to the Constitution. And this is very important. So you need the Senate, and, and really any law in general, you need the Senate and you need the House of Representatives both to vote a majority. And one represents the states, the other one kind of just represents the House of Representatives. And that's the way it was. Unfortunately, it's not like that anymore. It should be like that, I think, in my uh, opinion. And this would stop the excess of lawmaking, 
uh, which seems to be the diseases of every government most liable. And I'm going to go on in this, at the very end of this paper, there's a quote that really explains what additional lawmaking does and how bad it actually is for the little guy, for the working class person. So he goes on next, he states, and I quote, It must be acknowledged that this complicated check on legislation may in some instances be injurious as well as beneficial, and that the peculiar defense which it involves in, in favor of the smaller states would be more rational if any interests common to them and distinct from those of the other states would otherwise be exposed to peculiar danger. But as the larger states will always be able, by their power over the supplies, to defeat unreasonable exertions of this prerogative of the lesser states, and as the faculty and excess of lawmaking seem to be the diseases to which our government are most liable, it is not impossible that this part of the Constitution may be more convenient in practice than it appears to many in contemplation. End quote. <clears throat> so we say, oh, oh, this may be injurious because you're going to have smaller states that aren't going to pass any type of legislation. And then really at the end of the day, he says, but, the, but you still, as the larger states, they're still going to be more able, they have a power of supplies to defeat an unreasonable exertions of this prerogative by the smaller states. So if, if the smaller states are being unreasonable, usually there's not going to be a consensus of all the smaller states. You're going to have some of them trying to resist, and then you're going to have some of them that are on the side of the larger states. He's saying because the larger states are going to actually have more power of the supply, um, anything that's unreasonable that the, that the larger states don't agree with they're going to be able to still win and it's actually more important at the end of the day uh not to, to just pass the power onto the states themselves rather than the federal government anyway so i don't see really any type of problem with having less laws and, and less federal code and rather more in the state if you want to even pass all of these authoritarian laws and then that's also the system of federalism itself is the idea that you can move anywhere in your in, in the country and they have different types of government. So you can go to the best one, for example. You can go to Florida right now. Uh, real estate's skyrocketing because everybody's moving there. Even in New York, they've also representative in New York or one or two. And apparently they started gaining representatives in the states that are around New York. But you have people, and, and this <clears throat> doesn't really even actually have much to do with, well, yeah, it does. The lockdowns have something to do with Democrat and Republican. But when it comes to property tax, uh, real estate tax in the area, property uh, that actually doesn't really even have to do with Democrat and Republican. I think a lot of it is much more locally based, which is important. So if you see a state is Democrat, like a Michigan, but really Michigan, the big cities are Democrat, and then everywhere around Michigan really is pretty red. You can go to Michigan, you can go to, I mean, Ohio's pretty red as well. Pennsylvania voted blue, but they're really red too. You can go to those states specifically, and usually you can find pretty cheap real estate. You find low taxes there. It really isn't a blue and a red thing. The problem in New York City is it is just exponential amount. It's astronomical amount of taxation to the point where no one can afford to even live there anymore. When you have a middle-class family, it makes 400000 a year over there. That's considered middle-class middle over in New York City. So most, most importantly, must I repeat, this provision is to protect the smaller states and recognize their sovereignty from the larger states that have much more of an influence in the other chamber of Congress, but not in the Senate. Uh, the number of senators, as well as the duration of their appointment, is the next point in the provision of Senate to be considered. First, Madison, he argues that uh, two distinct bodies in the legislatures doubles the security of the people. So now he states this point here, uh, the distinct why there's going to be two distinct bodies and the duration of the appointment. He states, and I quote, First, 
it is a misfortune incident to Republican government, though is a less degree than to other governments, that those who administer it may forget their obligations to their constituents and prove unfaithful to their important trust. In this point of view, a Senate, as a second branch of the Legislative Assembly, distinct from and dividing the power with a first, must be in, a, in all cases a salutary check on the government. End quote. So what he's saying is because the state legislatures represent and they elect the Senate, this will be an automatic check on the federal Congress because you're always going to have one chamber in the Congress that is representative of the state itself and the state legislative branches. And if there's a problem with what the state legislative branches, if, if they think that the federal government's overstepping their power, then they have the senators themselves to represent them in that case. And that's, that's really the important part that he lays out there. And then he goes on to explain the doubling of security. He states, and I quote, It doubles the security of the people by requiring the concurrence of two distinct bodies in schemes of usurpation or perfidy, perfidy, where the ambition or corruption of one would otherwise be sufficient. This is a precaution found on such clear principles and now so well understood in the United States that it would be more than uh, superfluous to enlarge on it. End quote. So he's saying, you need the concurrence of two bodies if you want to pass any type of legislation, you want to make any type of law, you're going to need a, a, uh, a passing from both the House writes the bill and then the Senate approves the bill. Well, the House writes the bill and approves it, and then the Senate goes on to approve it as well, and then it goes up to the, to the president. So really there's like a three, there's a tripling of security, but in this case, it's he says it's double security to the people. And then also, if the Senate is derived from the state legislatures themselves, it's much more derived from uh, the people themselves and what those specific state governments want to see. So let's say, for example, if you're a state government and you know your people, uh, let's say you yield a lot of tobacco products. That's, that's how you make a lot of money. That's how a lot of your taxation takes place in your state. It's huge funding for you. The federal government wants to pass legislation to get rid of tobacco products entirely. Now, you would talk to your senator, and your senator would vote on behalf of your state legislature in your state legislative body because that's how it funds itself. That's how it works. So that's kind of the way it would work. Uh, now, once again, we don't have that system anymore, and I really don't know why they got rid of it. I like that system much more than I like the idea of having just, like, Democratic votes because I think it's much more representative of the character, a federal character, one, and two, having those uh those senators if your state is made up of let's say you know 12 different legislative districts for the state legislature and you know 10 out of those districts are republican voters in the state legislature right then two of them are democrat but guess what there's a crazy high population and that democrat population in those two in those two districts so when you go to vote now that there's a Democratic vote, it doesn't matter. The senator has to be Democrat, whereas that's not representative of the state itself, of the independent and sovereign municipalities. And that's kind of where the problem lies, and it makes it, it, it we get away from that federal character, and now it's a national character in both of the, uh, both of the chambers of Congress. So he goes on. 
Um, with two chambers, tyrannical law cannot pass if only one is in agreement. Next, the Senate is to be immune to the impulse of sudden and violent passions due to their six-year-long term, which he goes into. He states next, and I quote, It ought moreover to possess great firmness and consequently ought to hold its authority by a tenure of considerable duration, end quote. Now, Madison, he goes on to explain that a uh, short duration wouldn't allow the senators to comprehensively study the interests of the country. Otherwise, they may make a variety of important errors in the exercise of their legislative trust. So he goes on to explain this next. He states, and I quote, Thirdly, another, another defect to be supplied by a Senate lies in a want of due acquaintance. With the objects and principles of legislation, it is not possible that an assembly of men called for the most part from pursuits of a private nature, continued in appointment for a short time, and led by no permanent motive to devote the intervals of public occupation to a study of the laws, the affairs, and the comprehensive interests of their country, should, if left wholly to themselves, escape a variety of important errors in the exercise of their legislative trust, end quote. So what he's saying is you're going to need people uh, that serve for longer periods of time, giving them more stability. And he's going to go on to actually explain the importance of the stability as well. And they're going to have to be have the comprehensive interests of the of the country, study of the laws, the effect, the international affairs, what have you. And that's the importance of having these uh, long terms. And in the short term, you're not going to be able to do that. Now, and another thing is, there's not going to be you're going to be less accountable. You're going to hold less loyalty to the United States if you don't have like a longer term and are actually, you know, when you have a short term, it's kind of almost like having a lame duck like presidency where you become no longer accountable to the people. So continuing, Madison states, and, and this one's very important, he states, and I quote, a good government implies two things. First, fidelity to the object of government, which is the happiness of the people. Secondly, a knowledge of the means by which that object can be best attained. Some government governments are deficient in both these qualities. Most governments are deficient in the first. I scruple not to assert that in the American governments, too little attention has been paid to the last. The federal constitution avoids this error. And what merits particular notice, it provides for the last in the mode which increases the security for the first, end quote. What merits a particular notice... So, this is so important. He's saying the two the two things of good government, the two elements. You have fidelity to the object of government, which he says is the happiness of the people. Is the first thing, and then the second thing is how the knowledge of of how that is to be attained. And you know, his argument is the senators. You know, the longer they're in, they'll have this knowledge. But this is much more deeply rooted than that. And this is what currently goes on in modern politics. But, but it, it's different now. The media, the media, the Democrat Party, says that the Republicans lack the very first one and the second one. They say that they lack, the, they don't want happiness of the people. And additionally, they don't know the means by which the happiness of the people uh, can best be attained. Now, the Republican Party, on the other hand, they look at the Democrat Party and they say, oh, they do want the happiness of the people. They don't character assassinate them like the Democrats and the media do to the Republicans. They say they do want the happiness of the people. Their problem is they lack the means and the knowledge, um, meaning their plan of implementation, their politics are just wrong. They don't know what they're talking about. And that really is the case on on whichever side you you uh, 
should derive yourself. Like if you're if you're on the right, you think people on the left, they want the happiness of the people, but you think they don't know the means, they don't know the objects to best attain it. But usually if you're on the right, you get smeared as the guy that does it. You don't care and you don't know the means. You're selfish, what have you, whatever. Um, which, to be honest, in a, in, a, in a free country where we're all about individual rights and stuff, you really should be selfish. The only things you should care about are your direct family, your friends, uh, your community. And then other than that, you should tell everyone else, everyone else to go screw, honestly. You know, it is not up to you. This is not cultural Marxism where you're res you don't have responsibility for people that you don't know. And that's the way that they're trying to sell things now. You somehow have some sort of responsibility for everybody else, such as the student debt. The student debt you should have to pay for other people's loans because you know you shouldn't have to want them to go through that. I mean, it's a very weird answer. It's like it's like oh, their life sucks because they have to pay off student loans, so your life should suck, and there shouldn't, and you should pay off their college loans. That's the argument, kind of. It's very weird. All these social programs. That's really the argument is, oh well, especially the ones where they're not. Where there's no type of like social social security, for example, you can at least make the argument that whatever you pay in, you're supposed to get out. Like, you know, you're supposed to get a certain amount back. Whereas with Obamacare, with um, free, what is it? These free, what's it called? Free healthcare, things of that nature. You're paying for other people to go there, and you're not getting anything out of it because you already have your own private health insurance plan and you actually take care of yourself and, and or what have you. So you end up paying for people that are in really bad shape purposefully not taking care of themselves. And so Madison, he adds that in the history of American governments, too little attention has been paid to the last, meaning uh, paid to the means to acquire the happiness of the people. He states under the federal constitution there will be an avoidance of this error and providing for the second object will clearly increase the security of the first object. Which makes sense. The most significant portion of this paper is in the last four paragraphs, where Madison argues for what the nature of the Senate should be based on the example of the negative effects from an unstable Senate. Madison argues that short terms cause inconsistent changes of opinions and measures. So he goes on, he claims, and I quote, a continual change, even of good measures, is inconsistent with every rule of prudence and every prospect of success. It forfeits the respect and confidence of other nations and all the advantages connected with national character, end quote. This is actually very important as well. And this is what's actually being changed in modern times. The idea of when you say national character. So to begin with, you're saying have this inconsistency where their short terms is a problem and then also not having having you know an election i think it's like every single two years the senators are selected every single year really there's a different election where some people are leaving some people are entering uh the senate what have you instead of having the entire senate re-elected every single six years the entire senate then that would be a problem that'd be unstable because you'd have a whole new senate every single time there'd be no people already sitting in the positions in the seats so he importantly lays that out then the other thing that you really don't think about, you think about this national character, and this goes back to this multi multiculturalism that everybody deems as like a racist argument, the left, because you just say America needs to stay away from multiculturalism, and then you go on to explain it, but the left just cuts the whole part of the explanation and the context out of the argument. So the idea of multiculturalism, America has a specific culture. When you mean a specific culture, what do you mean? You mean a national character. When you say national character, what exactly uh, does that mean? There is a set... 
there is a set standard in America in terms of taxation, individual rights, individual freedoms. So this whole idea, this when we say multiculturalism, that's really what it is. Um, standing up for the flag, things things of that nature. It's it's the the culture, and it's not a culture of color, race. It's it's none of that. The culture is American culture. You celebrate the Fourth of July. You um, you praise Columbus. Well, that's how it used to be. Not anymore. <laughs> you appreciate individual rights of other people to speak freely, to practice their religion, to assemble, to protest, petition the government as long as it's peaceful. And then you uh, support people's Second Amendment, right to bear arms, right to keep and bear arms. Things of that nature, the unreasonable search and seizures, uh, that may not be abridged by the government. So, so there's so many, there's so many things. Those specific law, those specific provisions in the Constitution, the amendments, the Ten Amendments, uh, the Bill of Rights, the first Ten Amendments. These are the most. That is is really the idea of you know American culture, ha having though that mindset, that ideology, um, that those are fair and those are just. Whereas this idea of multiculturalism is we have people coming in from. And it has nothing to even do with, you know, origin of country. We have people coming from, you know, the Communist Party. We have people coming in from the Democrat Party telling us that, no, those things aren't good. Those things need to be abolished. We need to tear that down. That's really what we mean when we talk about multiculturalism. Um, additionally, if you have people from other countries that their culture is and it's acceptable too, because there, there are certain laws in the United States where, you know, rape is like a serious crime. You're going to go to, year, you know, you're going to go to prison for, let's say, 20, 30 years something of that nature, right? In other in other countries, that's not the case. You don't go to, you don't go to prison for that long. So that's another part of the idea of multiculturalism as well. That is that is kind of um, found its way into our country and is devolving because we all look and we look to these Nordic countries and we say, oh, look at their social welfare programs. They're so great. Uh, this, that, the other thing. That's the thing of multiculturalism, where now we're taking away the rights of the people to keep and own their labor. We're taking that away from them, and they're, we're making them, with their labor, pay for other people. And that's really the problem, that we're, uh, we are devolving, and we are moving away from the core foundation of what we're founded on, and individual rights. So he goes on next. He adds, let me see if I can find where I am, because I forgot again. Okay, Madison fears that this capricious policy is disastrous both internally and externally, and but more internally, it poisons the blessing of liberty itself. So he goes on to explain why. He states, and I quote, In the first place, it forfeits the respect and confidence of other nations and all the advantages connected with national character. An individual who is observed to be inconsistent to his plans or perhaps to carry on his affairs without any plan at all is marked at once all by all prudent people as a speedy victim to his own unsteadiness and folly. His more friendly neighbors may pity him, but all will decline to connect their fortunes with his, and not a few will seize the opportunity of making their fortunes out of his. End quote. So he's just saying if you, if you have... Uh, someone that is so disconnected from the national character, just and this is why uh, I explain that whole national character. You have people like AOC, you have people like Ayanna Presley, uh, what's her name, the other one, Ilhan Omar. You have people like that that are so disconnected from the national character, they're going to continue with these inconsistent plans, and they're going to carry on their affairs, and they're going to be so vehement about it 
and they are a victim of their own unsteadiness and their own un their own folly and people will take advantage of them um when AOC, AOC is a focus group tested candidate. She was someone that was selected out of a focus group. That is what the Democrat Party does. They, they train these people almost like in a lab. I mean, it's, 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 it's very scientific with what they do. They take a group of people and they say, hey, so what do you think of this person? Oh, well, I think their facial structure. What do you think about this when they talk this way or talk that way? How do you think that makes them attractive to the people that are voting for them or their constituency? They do things of that nature to try to to attempt to uh, to really trick and hoodwink the people. So they're just being kind of used, like AOC, for example, she's just being used to implement communism, socialism. I don't think she actually really knows the true, the true downfalls and the true tumult that can ensue from implementing the policies that she espouses. Same thing with Ilhan Omar and all of them. I think they're just not intelligent enough and they're kind of being used right now as a tool. I think they're, I mean, obviously, I think they're extreme and it's not good, but I'm going to continue here. I know that we're going a little late. This one's going to be long for sure. Yeah. All right. So next, these states, and I quote, the internal, oh, oh, sorry. <clears throat> so Madison, he claims that an inconsistently changing Senate renders volatility and will cause laws to be fair or to be far too voluminous to the extent that they are incoherent and cannot be understood. Madison illustrates the point that frivolous laws and regulations only benefit the rich and will trace their consequences. So he's going to explain this soon. States, and I quote, The internal effects of a mutable policy are still more calamitous. calamitous. It poisons the blessing of liberty itself. It will be of little avail to the people that the laws are made by men of their own choice if the laws be so voluminous that they cannot be read or so incoherent that they cannot be understood. If they be repealed or revised before they are promulgated or undergo such incessant changes that no man who knows what the law is today can guess what it will be tomorrow. Law is defined to be a rule of action. But how can that be a rule which is little known and less fixed, end quote? So the idea of mutable policy, um, you know, getting away from what we're founded on our founding principles and embracing this multiculturalism is really the point that he's making. Mutable policy where it's just ever-changing, it's, it's lackluster, it's not set in stone, and you could just continue to change it, it it breeds this voluminous policy, which we have now. We have insane amount of policy that really you don't... It gets to the point where the rich benefit off of this policy because they're the ones that can hire the accountants and the lawyers and everybody else can't do so. And that's really what he's getting at. And having things change, you know, where, oh no, guns are legal now, guns aren't legal now. I mean, going on and off, having this executive branch with these executive orders straight down everybody's throat every single four years... This is mutable policy, and that's what makes an unstable nation. That's why the stock market right now has not, it's not crashing, but it's not moving nowhere near what it was moving uh, years ago. Because you have deregulation, then you have regulation again, then they're getting rid of pipelines, they're messing around with the oil prices. It's just a total disaster when you have everything implemented through this executive order-like policy structure where you really shouldn't have it. That causes the instability. But more importantly, he's pointing out in the Senate themselves, if they didn't serve these six-year terms, there would be great instability like that. And that's what's currently going on, but it has nothing to really do uh, with the Senate, and it's much more 
from the executive branch and the government just being too big in a general sense. So he argues that more regulation causes more instability and the government should protect enterprise with a steady system of national policy. So Madison concludes with the statement. He states, and I quote, Another effect of public instability is the unreasonable advantage it gives to the sagacious, the enterprising, and the moneyed few, moneyed as in the rich, few over the industrious and uniformed mass of the people. Every new regulation concerning commerce or revenue or in any way affecting the value of the different species of property presents a new harvest to those who watch the change and can trace its consequences, a harvest reared not by themselves, but by the toils and cares of the great body of their fellow citizens. This is a state of things in which it may be said with some truth that laws are made for the few, not for the many, end quote. So this is what he said, and this is him really predicting this corporatist or this corporatism that's actually currently going on. He's saying you're going to have these rich people, you're going to have these sagacious, these enterprising that are going to take advantage of everybody else because they're going to use the government, they're going to use the instability in the government to pass laws that affect them in a positive sense. They're made for the few, not for the many. They're going to help them out. And the more and more laws they pass, it's going to be difficult for the little guy, the middle class guy, to interpret those laws and to create a free enterprise off those laws. And then we're going to have all the all these issues where the really rich dudes are going to make off on all of the, uh, the guys on the bottom or the middle class. They're going to make off with all of their money. And we've seen this and, and we've seen quintessential examples of this in all the blue states that were shut down by all the blue governors, by all the, it's, it's, it's. This idea, this this love of Wall Street, this love of big corporations, this corporatist ideology is coming straight from the Democrat Party. This used to kind of be more of a Republican thing where they were like, oh, well, you know, Republicans have low taxes, but low taxes really affects everybody. Everyone gets low taxes. It's not the corporations get low taxes What we and, and everyone else doesn't get low taxes. It's everybody gets low taxes. So, so to me, that's much more fair of a model than the idea, and we can get into different write-offs and deductions, but the idea of the Democrat Party telling everybody that runs their small businesses, oh no, you guys can't do your thing, you guys can't run your business, too bad, sorry, um, live in impoverished, in impoverishment, I guess the word would be, be poor, we don't care about you, lose all your money, defund your bank accounts, you can be destitute for all we care. And big corporations, no, you guys can continue to run, you guys can take all of the business all the consumer base from those small businesses and you can take them and move it over to your business. That is exactly what has happened in this last year and a half from the and it's all from the Democrat party. It's not the Republicans have not been doing this. You can say whatever you want about the Republicans. I'm not a fan of them either, but the Democrat party specifically has been doing this. They have been switching. They've been making law to help the rich dudes and they have taken all that. There's been a huge wealth swap from the small business owners to the big top business owners, the corporations. So next he goes on. Uh, this this excerpt has a great significance in terms of regulation and the principle of lobbying and buying influence in the government. Madison portends that there will be businessmen that will attempt to use the government as a tool to make more money by exploiting the great body of the citizens as well as use the government to regulate opposing businesses out of commission, which is the reasoning behind the statement that the laws are made to benefit the few at the expense of the many. So now it goes on. I have two more quotes left. He states, and I quote, 
In another point of view, great injury results from an unstable government. The want of confidence in the public councils damps every useful undertaking, the success and profit of which may depend on a continuance of existing arrangements. What prudent merchant will hazard his fortunes in any new branch of commerce when he knows not but that his plans may be rendered unlawful before they can be executed? What farmer or manufacturer will lay himself out for the encouragement given to any particular cultivation or establishment when he can have no assurance that his preparatory labors and advances will not render him a victim to an inconstant government? In a word, no great improvement or laudable enterprise can, be, can go forward which requires the auspices of a steady system of national policy. So what he says is, how is it how are you going to have the confidence of these public councils where they're taking on different laws every single day? They're changing everything so immutable. Where they're changing laws constantly. How is it that new branches of commerce are to commence? And how is it that, you know, for the farmer, the manufacturer themselves are going to be encouraged to cultivate and establish their businesses? And they're going to become, if they do, they will be rendered a victim of the uh, of this inconsistent government, this capricious system uh, that makes them a victim, really. So, so the point is to keep the regulations down, especially from the federal government. There's no reason to have all these regulations in the federal government and to allow for a free enterprise, free-moving, flowing enterprise where everybody that is a small business owner, too, can also make money. Um, everything is supposed to kind of affect everybody equally, really, at the end of the day, and it should be the fairest, most open system. So he goes on, the very last quote, he states, and I quote, But the most deplorable effect of all is that the diminution of attachment and reverence which steals into the hearts of the people towards a political system which betrays so many marks of infirmity and disappoints so many of their flattering hopes. No government any more than an individual will long be respected without being truly respectable nor be truly respectable without possessing a certain portion of order and stability, end quote. So you're just kind of hammering it home. No one's going to be respected if you're in the government, and or no government in a general sense will be respected by the people if there's no portion of order and stability. So we see this right now. We see this in uh, Portland, Oregon. There is no order or stability. No one respects the governor or the, I'm sorry, the mayor of Portland because you have people in the streets that have just been burning down the city for, for almost a year now at this point. There's no order, there's no stability. Um, because of that, they don't have respect for them. Same thing with when law enforcement, like when they're not doing their job and there's chaos in the streets, just in a general sense, the people feel very uneasy. They feel like everything is unstable and they really do not trust uh, the system. So that'll be it for this one. I really appreciate everyone for tuning in. I know it was a little bit of a heavier lift today. I'm happy I got through this so quickly, but. Uh, make sure you listen to the weekend special, just a housekeeping notice. Next week, I will not be doing the Federalist Paper podcast. I'm going to have some family stuff going on this next week, this this weekend, so I'm going to be a little short on time. But I will be doing, you know, tomorrow we're going to have this weekend special. We're still going to have all the current events, no matter what. So I greatly appreciate everyone for tuning in, um, and I will see you this weekend. Thank you. It's true.